book of Galatians, chapter 1. I'll do so myself here. My arm is still tired from holding that kid. He is getting big. So if this arm doesn't lift as much when I'm talking, that's why. <laughs> Galatians chapter 1. We're, gonna, um, we're continuing our uh, study in Galatians today. <clears throat> as a reminder, Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches that he founded in Galatia. Um, he loves these Galatian Christians dearly, and he's heard reports that they are uh, unfortunately now drifting from the gospel that he initially delivered to them. False teachers have infiltrated these Galatian churches, uh, and they have taught that something beyond faith in Christ alone is necessary for salvation. They said that's, that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Christ, uh, well, Paul is not going to tolerate that because that is not what's true. He does not tolerate this heresy. Last week, we learned from, uh, from earlier in Galatians, as, as Mark taught on, uh, Paul, was, Paul was fired up. Uh, he, was, he was passionate about these false teachers leading the Galatians away from the one true message of salvation. He was, he was so uh, fired up, in fact, that he pronounced a curse of eternal damnation against any who would preach a different gospel than the one that Paul already delivered to them. And so now, Paul moves in his letter to a defense of the gospel that he preached to the Galatians. He's saying, any other gospel is false, this one's true, I'm going to defend it. And that brings us to our passage today. We're going to consider verses 11 through 24, but we're going to start in verse 10 for a little bit of context. We'll, uh, we'll pray for God's help, um, uh, and then we're going to read, or we'll, we'll read his word, and then we'll pray for his help in the preaching of his word. So, Galatians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 10. This is God's holy word given to us. Paul writes, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith 
he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God of all of history, uh, we come to you uh, aware of our need uh, for you. Um, we cannot understand your word without the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we act, ask him, Lord, now to be active in our hearts um, as we consider the very words that you've preserved for thousands of years for our good and for the glory of your son, Jesus. So we pray that you would meet us, uh, that you would change us, that you would awaken our our sleepy and distracted hearts to the truth that gives us life and sets us free. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. During the heart of the pandemic, which was such a fun time, I grew an appreciation for good sources. Uh, there was a, as you know, a bombardment of updates on the pandemic and its spread, of guidelines for health and safety, of legal mandates concerning how we uh, conduct our life and our business. And that last category of legal mandates was really of particular concern to me and the other elders, since we were responsible for making decisions uh, about how our church was going to function uh, in light of these mandates. What were the exact limitations? Was there wiggle room? Where was the wiggle room? Were there mandates that were encroaching upon any of God's direct commands to us? These are questions we had, we wanted to know. And what made things particularly tricky was that there were just so many numerous secondary sources on these legal mandates. And while they had their usefulness, and some of them were quite useful, in highlighting key aspects of, of new mandates or summarizing legal uh, requirements or or uh, creating infographics that helped you wrap your head around this you know, otherwise like 18-page document of technical legal language. While they were helpful, these, these second, secondary sources often omitted certain details or would otherwise interpret what the mandate said. But we wanted to read from the primary source, uh, the very executive orders and the public health orders that were legally binding. We, we wanted to depend uh, upon, not on secondary sources, but on primary sources as we strove to, by God's grace, do the best we could in leading this church. We wanted to get back to the source. And in our passage today, Paul shares a similar burden for primary sources. Except in this case, he's not talking about human news and human mandates being on the line. Rather, God's news, his declarations, his mandates, his expectations upon us are on the line. See, Paul is about to defend that the gospel, which just means good news, it's news, it's been delivered. This gospel that he proclaimed to the Galatians, he's claiming, he's going to defend that this came not from a secondary source, like humans, but from the primary source of Jesus Christ himself. In verse 11, Paul says this, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel is that his Paul's claim rather is that his gospel came directly from Jesus, not man. Now, why should that matter to us? Why did it matter so much to Paul? Well, if the gospel that we believe and preach, the gospel we believe and preach in this church. If that's not the true 
gospel. If it is man's gospel, man's good news, then, then we are failing to adhere to the news and the mandates that God has given us, mandates by which he will judge us in the final day. But if the gospel we believe and preach is the true one, the very gospel from Jesus Christ himself, then we can rest assured that we know exactly what God requires of us and be certain that we are in right relationship with him. The gospel that Paul preaches is from Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate primary source. And so we can have confidence to fully trust and believe this good news and reject anything that claims otherwise. So Paul is going to defend his claim that his gospel came from Jesus and not man by giving two personal proofs. And stated from Paul's perspectives, uh, he might say it like this. He says, first, this gospel transformed my life. And proof two, I didn't get this gospel from the apostles. Now, quick note, we may be we, we might have expected Paul um, to go to go directly in his defense of the gospel to Old Testament proofs, right? Go back to what do the old prophets say? How is Jesus in line with that? Uh, what are the fulfillments of, of Scripture? And Paul certainly does give proofs from the Old Testament. We're going we're to read all about those in chapters 3 and 4. He is ready to give a defense of the gospel from the Holy, Holy Scriptures. But he begins his defense of the gospel with these proofs from personal experience, um, which we might be tempted to kind of cast aside as what is, it's just your own experience. That doesn't, that doesn't anchor it. But let's not cast them aside. I, I think we're going to find them compelling this morning. Um, and so uh, just like in a, in a, in a courtroom where, where you're hearing uh, a testimonial witness of someone's, uh, of, what they, of what they saw, of what they heard, and as that's corroborated with other witnesses, uh, we're going to find... Paul's testimony this morning, compelling. So let's jump right in to Paul's first proof. Proof one, this gospel transformed my life, says Paul. Now remember, uh, Paul has made a a bold claim. He states, this is bold, he states that he got his gospel directly from Jesus Christ himself. Okay, verse 12, he says that he received his gospel, quote, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, this makes me think of other people who have claimed, made claims like this, right? Uh, Claim that they've received uh, um, revelations of God and even of Jesus Christ himself. Um, For example, Joseph Smith, you might know that name, founder of Mormonism, claimed that he received visions from God. He claimed that he saw God the Father in Jesus Christ himself and that later he he saw an angel who, who... who delivered to him a message revealing the location of these golden plates that had Jewish and Christian history inscribed on them, and that he then translated those into English, which is now what is called the Book of Mormon. So he's making the same sort of claim. I saw Jesus Christ, and he has delivered to me a message that I am to proclaim to the world. And that is true. So how do we assess such claims? can feel like, how can you argue with someone saying, God told me this? Okay, how, how do we assess that? Well, if you're going to claim that God met you in a vision and that he's given you a message for mankind, you better have some really good proof for it. And Paul does. Paul's proof is this, his first proof. My life has been transformed. 
Paul's implicitly saying, I didn't come up with this on my own. If I did, my life would look a whole lot different than it does now. In verse 10, he says, if I were still trying to please man, for example, by, by making up some gospel of his own, some, some news he wanted to, to uh, present to others for his own advantage, like I would say Joseph Smith did, to his own advantage, bring this cult following. Paul's saying, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, literally a slave of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying it would make no sense at all for him to preach the gospel that he's preaching if that gospel didn't truly come from Jesus Christ. And why not? Why wouldn't it make sense for Paul to preach this gospel if he didn't receive it from Jesus? Well, we're going to look at his transformed life to find out why it wouldn't make sense at all for Paul to preach the gospel of a crucified Savior and faith in him alone as justification before God the Father. That would make no sense for Paul to deliver that to others unless Jesus had made it clear to him that that was, in fact, truth. So we're going to look first at what Paul's life was before he received this revelation, and then we're going to look at the after. So again, the transformation of Paul's life. So first, before he encountered Christ, Paul was sold on Judaism. Uh, he states in verse 13, he says, "'You have heard of my former life in Judaism.'" That's a good way of describing it. Former life. Paul was a different man. He's saying, before I encountered Jesus, I was a completely different person. I was 100% into Judaism and not at all into Christianity. And how do, we, how do we know this? How do we know that Paul was fully devoted to Judaism? Well, he presents two, I would say, overwhelming pieces of evidence in this courtroom of his defense of the gospel. And these two pieces of evidence we might think of as exhibits. Exhibit A, Paul was on a mission to destroy Christianity. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B, Paul's career in Judaism was booming. So he's saying, before I was transformed, I'm sold on Judaism. How do you know? I wanted to destroy Christianity itself, and man, I already had it good in Judaism. So we're going to look at each of those. First, exhibit A, Paul's mission to destroy Christianity. We read about this in verse 13. There Paul writes this. He says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Guys, it's not like Paul had a mild distaste for Christianity. You know, the, maybe uh, unlike perhaps the, the next door neighbor who, who had a bad experience in church and that's kind of left this bad taste in their mouth, and they're, they're not so sure. They don't want to enter a church building anymore. They're, they're, they're uncertain about Christians. They're wary. That's not Paul. Paul is vehemently opposed to Christianity, and he was going to stop at nothing until he saw the complete annihilation of the church of Jesus Christ. We read about this in Acts 8, that Saul, which was his name before he encountered Christ, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9 tells us that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So here's Saul, hating the church of God, cursing those who follow Jesus, causing excessive damage to God's people. That's what ravaging means, causing severe and excessive damage. He's entering Christians' very houses and dragging them, pardon me, off to prison. And he's getting arrest warrants from high priests to go to go imprison Christians that are over 150 miles away from Jerusalem. That's, that's further than Cheyenne from here. He is, he is set against Christianity. Paul, sorry, Saul had a reputation even among Christians as a violent persecutor of the church. We learn from Acts 9 that Ananias, <laughs> who had a fun job, uh, he was told by God to visit Saul after Saul encountered Jesus. And when Ananias was told by God, Saul, you're going to go, or it's not Saul, Ananias, you're going to go, you're going to go meet with this guy. He's very hesitant. <laughs> the encounter is recorded in Acts 9. Ananias responds to God, to God this way. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is going, are you sure? You mean Saul of Tarsus? The guy who came here to imprison people like me? We read later. So, so Ananias is super hesitant. He's faithful. He, he follows God's command. But he's hesitant. And later we learn that once Saul actually um, returns to Jerusalem, after three years of being a Christian and, and ministering to others and in preaching Christ, three years after that, he returns to Jerusalem. It says this, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. We think this is a ruse that you've got to be, you're trying to trap us Saul. We can't believe that the guy who was violently persecuting the church has now come back after three years and somehow is new. I don't, I don't believe it. I don't, I don't think it's true. Instead, Barnabas, who was with Saul, had to vouch for him. He has said, no, 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 guys. Saul really met Jesus. He's really been transformed. I can, I can attest to the last three years. And he has to actually convince them that Saul is, in fact, a Christian. So he had this reputation, Saul of Tarsus. To the Christians of his day, that name, Saul of Tarsus, would have probably sounded something like Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden. Right, these names that make us go, ooh, never naming my kid Adolf. <laughs> right? No one wanted to name their kid Saul. Why was Paul so opposed to Christianity? Why did he violently persecute God's church? Because he was devoted to what he thought was truth. He was devoted to Judaism. Paul says in verse 13 of our passage that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Paul was zealous for the doctrines and the teachings that he had received as a Jew, teachings that were passed down generation after generation. He was all about his Old Testament. And his zeal led him to have a violent anger, in fact, against those who appeared to be preaching heresy. And that's exactly how he saw Christians. Here's, here's Saul's take on the recent events in Israel. He hears about this man, Jesus. He's some nobody from nowhere, uh, potentially born out of 
wedlock, from Nazareth, this, this nowhere land. And, and he breaks Jewish customs, like working on the Sabbath. He upsets all their expectations. He criticizes publicly the Jewish leaders, whom, whom Saul would have been raised up under. He makes what appear to be blasphemous claims to be the Messiah and makes himself, in fact, equal with God. This Jesus is gaining a huge following among the crowds and, and the Jewish leadership who have been, who, you know, they believe, faithfully carrying along God's people. Now, they're all going after this other guy, this Jesus, and they're losing their grip and they're losing their influence. And the Jewish officials finally, man, they finally get him executed for what they believe to be blatant blasphemy. He's finally executed. They're glad. This whole thing, okay, it's over. Whew, that was crazy. But now, it's not over. These Jesus followers are now claiming that he rose from the dead, which is crazy. And, and they're, they're still causing trouble. They're still converting people away from Judaism, people away from what seems to be the true way. They're teaching that a right relationship with God doesn't depend upon keeping the Jewish laws. What? A right relationship with God doesn't come through all the laws that we have to keep that God has given us through Moses? They're infiltrating the Jewish synagogues even with what appears to be their heretical teaching. And Saul is going to have none of this. He gets enraged. He gets filled with zeal that he takes it upon himself to hunt down, arrest, and imprison these Christian imposters. He thinks he's following the examples of zealous and devout Jews like Phineas, who skewered a fellow Israelite for publicly sleeping with a forbidden Moabite woman and so kept God's wrath from lashing out against Israel for their idolatry. He thinks, that's what I'm doing. These people are going out after other gods. They're abandoning the way. They're going after heresy. I must stop this. I must shut it down. Paul was deeply loyal to Judaism. His extreme zeal led him to violently persecute the Christian church. But we see that Paul's commitment to Judaism was not only um, uh, seen through his his persecution of Christians, his devotion was clear, but also his commitment to Judaism was certainly furthered by his own personal gain, uh, especially as an up-and-coming Jewish leader. That's exhibit B. Exhibit B, this is the pre-Christian, pre-Christ Saul. Paul's career is booming in Judaism. That's exhibit B, Paul's booming career in Judaism. So he's not only motivated theologically, okay, he's been passed down scriptures of the Old Testament, but he's also motivated personally to be committed to Judaism. We read about this in verse 14. It says this, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was, in Jewish circles, a renowned young professional who was quickly climbing the ladder of religious influence and leadership. It says Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. Think of the A-plus students that were in your high school class, and they were taking all these AP credits, and they were graduating with their associates, and they were halfway to their bachelors, and they kind of disgusted you because you know, they were way ahead of you. 
Or maybe you were one of them and everyone didn't like you, either way. Or, or think of the, the young professional who's, who's quickly um, uh, uh, advancing up that corporate ladder. They're like, wow, you, you're already doing that? And you're, you're only how old? Or they're the entrepreneur who's, whose business is really taking off. That's Paul. Okay, he was probably in his late 20s when he successfully acquired these arrest warrants for Christians from the high priest in Jerusalem. All this pre-Christ Saul, probably late 20s. He was doing well, making it in the big city of Jerusalem. I mean, this is where all the top dogs are. It's not easy to be a big... It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the, he's not a you know, small fish in a big pond. This is a big pond. Jerusalem is where it's at. But he's doing well there, far away from his hometown, away from Tarsus. That's up north, you know, over 100 miles away. He's doing well. He's successful. He has influence. His career is booming. He had every reason to remain completely committed to Judaism. Why upset that? To do anything other than hold to what he was already holding to would have have meant suicide for his career. That's what it would have meant. So Paul, Paul was firmly set on Judaism. He was all in. He was committed theologically to the, to the traditions of his fathers, and also his, his financial and his social well-being were wrapped up in a successful career as a young Jewish leader. That was Paul's former life before he encountered Jesus. But Paul did encounter Jesus. He encountered the resurrected Christ, and it completely transformed his life. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the apostle. Saul the persecutor became Paul the preacher. Saul, pleaser of man, became Paul, slave of Christ. After Paul met Jesus, his life trajectory completely changed. Verse 23 of our passage sums it up well. When a report was spreading of this newly transformed Paul. It was being said of him, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That report was spreading. This guy's new. He's so different than the Saul we knew a few years ago. Instead of persecuting the church, Paul was now being persecuted. After Saul's conversion and subsequent evangelism in Damascus, the Jews plot to kill Saul. It's kind of ironic. This is where Saul would have been part of them earlier. Now they're plotting to kill him. They're like, what the heck? He's going off the rails. And, and he has to escape the city, uh, not through the gates, because they were watching the gates. He had to get into a basket and be lowered down uh, out of the city wall to get out of Damascus. That was only three years into his ministry. He's got serious... Uh, uh, plots against his life. So he's not only being persecuted instead of persecuting, uh, also, uh, instead of opposing faith in Jesus, he's now preaching it. He preached in Damascus and Arabia for three years, and then declared Christ briefly in Jerusalem. And then later he went on uh, his uh, missionary journey, what we know to be Paul's first missionary journey, if you've heard that term. Uh, And that included uh, an island uh, in, in the Mediterranean, and then eventually he went north from there and visited Galatia, to whom he's now writing, to these Christians that he loves. Instead of destroying the church of God, Paul is now seeking to build it up. He's doing the exact opposite of what he was doing. Paul founded the churches in Galatia, 
And he's writing back to these churches now, admonishing them and defending the faith he once taught them. So what explains this extreme reversal in Paul's life? What causes a zealous persecutor to become a fervent preacher? What causes someone to abandon an incredibly successful career for the reproach of Christ? Nothing shy of a real encounter with the risen Jesus. On his way to Damascus, arrest warrants in hand, Saul of Tarsus is confronted by the resurrected and glorified Jesus. He's blinded for three days. He's humbled. He's transformed. He enters Damascus. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. He simply prays to the Lord and gets a vision of him. And God sends Ananias to him to give him back his sight and to fill him with the Holy Spirit. Paul recounts God's mercy to him, and it is mercy. In verses 15 and 16 this way, he writes, He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Note here the power of God's salvation. Paul seemed like a lost cause. He's actively persecuting Jesus' saints and even therefore Jesus himself. And yet God appointed Paul for mercy. He did so even before Paul was born. This was his plan all along. And when God saw fit, when the timing was right, he revealed his son to Paul and made him a new man. Friends, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anyone, including those who seem hopelessly opposed to Christianity, ignorant of Christianity, apathetic toward Christianity, toward Jesus. He can save your neighbor. He can save your family member. He can save your coworker. No one is outside of his reach. And God has already destined some around us for mercy. Brothers and sisters, this should give us great encouragement in evangelism, which simply means good newsifying, <laughs> telling people this good news. Because God has already marked out some for salvation. And as long as we're faithfully telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ dying on, our, dying on the cross for our sins, then we might just get to be the ones who are there when God is pleased, is happy, thinks it good to reveal himself to them in a saving way. Like thunder that always follows lightning. I think about the thunderstorms we've been having this week. You know how you, you see that flash? Oh, that was a big one. How close was it? When are we going to hear the thunder? I love doing that. <laughs> sometimes it's close. Sometimes it's a long time. You see a big flash, you're like, it's coming. It's coming. It's com- I know it's going to come. It's not here yet. There it is. It's only a matter of time until those whom God has chosen will be spiritually resurrected and made new. It is sure. He has destined people for mercy. So let's be a part of that. Let's be a part of proclaiming the good news that makes someone go from destined for mercy to now experiencing it. That's the privilege we get in evangelism. Paul's not finished. He's defending 
But the good news he proclaims came from Jesus, not from man. And he's proven thus far that he had a very real encounter with the resurrected Jesus, as evidenced by his radically transformed life. And now he defends that this message he proclaims from Christ during, uh, uh, or rather the, the message that he proclaims came from Christ during this encounter and not from anyone else. And that leads us to proof two. Proof two for this gospel being from Jesus and not from man. Proof two being, I didn't get this gospel from the apostles. Paul, starting in verse 15, writes this. He says, But when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, why is this important to Paul? It seems a little bit of an odd thing to even mention. Well, Paul wants to make it crystal clear to his audience that this message of salvation through faith in Christ alone came directly from Jesus and was untainted by others. Remember, Paul was losing credibility in the Galatians' eyes. They had once believed the gospel they heard from him. They had believed it, they sincerely accepted and adopted it, they were gathered into churches, even, they were meeting publicly. But now, they've heard another gospel, and it sounds more believable. It's, it's what Paul is going to fight against for, the, for most of this letter. They started believing another gospel, they've, they're starting to slip. Sure, sure, Paul might have had an encounter with Jesus. Okay, let's give him that. He might have had a real encounter with Jesus. But maybe the message that he's now delivering to everybody uh, came from other humans uh, who, who might have also made it up or got it wrong. Uh, maybe he's got it wrong. Maybe he's really preaching man's gospel, a gospel according to man, from man. Its origin is in man. Paul's not going to rest easy with, with the, his Galatians, his beloved Galatians thinking this way. No, he wants to disband every shred of doubt that's been cast upon his gospel by his opponents who would say that Paul's gospel was somehow distorted or diluted or incomplete. And so Paul, in defending that his gospel came directly from Christ, sets out to prove that he didn't even have the opportunity to receive this gospel from the main Christian leaders of his day, which were the apostles. Uh, we read in verse 16 that Paul, quote, did not immediately consult with anyone after he met Christ. More literally, he did not consult with flesh and blood. This speaks to the, the, the humanness, the, the mortality uh, of, of humans. He's saying, I didn't get this message from mere mortal human, from flesh and blood. No, I got it from Jesus himself. He also says he didn't go back to Jerusalem to verify his message with the other apostles who came before him. So not immediately, he didn't go back to Jerusalem and say, hey, I've got this idea now of what I believe to be the truth, Am I, on, am, I on my, am I on the right track? Let's, what, what, is, what is the teaching? Let's get it right. No, instead, he spends three years teaching in not only Damascus, but Arabia. That's, that's, that's far away. That's like east of everything. So he, 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 he teaches far away from the apostles who were all in Jerusalem at the time. And then when Paul finally does visit Jerusalem three years later after he's already preaching a gospel that he, that he received from Christ, the only apostles that he actually visits are Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, 
and James, the Lord's brother, who isn't even one of the 12 uh, uh, disciples. He's recognized as, as an apostle, but he's not even one of the 12. So only Peter and, 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 and James and Barnabas brought him there. So Barnabas is with him. They know that. And when he's there, Paul doesn't even spend much time with them. Verse 18 tells us that Paul stayed with Peter only 15 days. Um, and in fact, when he says uh, to visit Peter, because he says, I, I, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that word visit kind of just basically means get to know. So he has, he's, he's, it's, a, it's an initial contact. He, he wants to go get to know Peter. He's heard about him. He used to be opposed to him. Now he's like, brother, let's, let's meet up. Let's, let's chat. So he, he doesn't even know Peter. He's just getting to know him. And two weeks, though that would have been, man, what an amazing two weeks. N- newly made Paul, talking with Peter the Apostle, sitting down. He's in his home. I'm sure they chat about all sorts of stuff. But, but even that, two weeks would hardly have been enough time for Paul to actually get his gospel from Peter and all the intricacies of what it meant and, and all, the, all the intricacies that, that Paul was proclaiming. And then just as further proof of Paul's short stay in Jerusalem, he cites that those in Judea, who, uh, which is the, surrounding, uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem, he says that uh, those in that area didn't even have time to get to know Paul personally. Uh, in verse 22, he writes, I was still unknown in person or, or unknown personally to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So what does all this tell us? His, his not immediately consulting with flesh and blood. He doesn't go back to Jerusalem. Instead, he spends three years elsewhere. He visits only Peter and James. He's only there for two weeks. What does that say? There is no possible way that Paul got his message from the apostles. He didn't verify his gospel with them initially, but preached independently based upon his revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this may sound odd to us, wouldn't it be a good thing for Paul's message to be verified by the other apostles? Wouldn't that have vetted him? Wouldn't that have given him more credibility, not less? Why is Paul arguing, I didn't have contact? Well, if you did, then we would know that it's consistent, right? Well, eventually, this would give Paul more credit because eventually he would actually go back and have his message verified by the other apostles. We learn that 17 years after Paul's conversion, the other apostles, in fact, do verify Paul's message. We'll read about that next time in chapter 2. But this initial season of Paul preaching this gospel independently, and then only later being verified by the other apostles, is a strong witness that, uh, to, to, to Paul's claim that his Uh, that he received his gospel directly from Jesus, just as the other apostles had. They received it directly from Jesus. He's saying, I did likewise. 17 years I've been preaching this gospel. Then I verify, and they say, yep, we're, we're on the same page. How does that happen? Only if it really came from the same source. I think of a, a police investigation where a detective is trying to figure out the facts of the case, right? If he knows that his suspects have had time to talk to one another before he gets to interrogate them, he's going to suspect that if, if they're guilty, maybe they've come up with this joint alibi, this story, this, this fake, uh, fake account that they can all, oh yeah, we were all, okay, we were all at that party that night, right? Okay, good, and you did this, and I did that, so we have some specific, specifics about what, what's going down. They may have a chance to have colluded and, and, and made the story false. But if this detective knows that these people haven't had a chance to do that, they haven't had a chance to coordinate, 
He's catching them off guard. He can more readily trust their testimonies and be able to verify, does what you say line up with what you said? Well, they did. And I know you haven't had a chance to communicate. Okay. I can believe that more readily. It's the same case with Paul and the other apostles. If they had time to communicate, they had time to come up with some other false story, some false gospel, then, um, then we couldn't believe it, or it would be, less, it'd be a, a less strong argument. But the fact that they did independently preach the exact same gospel long before they had a chance to verify it uh, goes to show that this gospel came from one true source, Jesus Christ himself. So Paul met a very real Jesus. His life was transformed because of it, and you could see the proofs all over it, all over his life. Paul didn't get his gospel from the other apostles, but it's the same gospel as theirs. Indeed, the gospel that Paul preaches is from Jesus, not man. So what does that mean for us? Why is that important, that it came from Jesus? It means that we can be confident that this gospel that we believe is true and trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, we have it right. We don't say that proudly. We say it because we are confident that God has made it clear through his scriptures, even through things like Paul's own conversion, making it evident to us. This is the true gospel that takes people who hated Jesus and to people who love him, resurrecting dead hearts and making them new. This is the gospel that's verified from different preachers at different times, and they come together and they go, yes, that's right. Faith alone in Christ is the way that we are made right with God. Nothing else is true. Nothing else is the true gospel. Nothing else can save. The true gospel is our source of joy, and we can be confident that we believe and know and therefore can preach this gospel to the world. Paul's summary of of this gospel that he received is written well in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The gospel that we receive and proclaim that Christ died for our sins is the true gospel. And may we ever cherish this gospel and never look for another. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus Christ. Thank you for doing that for Saul of Tarsus on his trajectory against Jesus for revealing the risen and glorified Jesus who is going to raise and glorify us. Thank you, Lord, that um, Christ has died on a cross to pay for our debt and make us right with you through faith in him alone. For we, we thank you for the, the comforting, abundant proofs, Lord, that your son truly rose again and has given us a good news by which we are saved. And so thank you, Lord, for preserving scripture for our good, for our salvation, and for our joy. Thank you for setting us apart and for calling us by your grace. Pray that you would strengthen us, um, pray, uh, strengthen our conviction of the truth that what we believe is in fact true, 
and it's the cause of our joy. Lord, make us witnesses of this good news that has saved each of us. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in all of this. It's in his name we pray. Amen.